is art. And I love literature, I love sculpture, I love film, I love painting. Um, and uh, there we go. This is, this is by one of my favorite artists, a guy named Pablo Picasso. You may have heard of him. Uh, he was a big deal like 100 years ago. <laughs> uh, but this is painted around 1904. It's during Picasso's blue period. Uh, this is a time when Picasso was super depressed. He was almost destitute. He'd been dumped by his longtime girlfriend. One of his good friends had just died. And he's almost, like, he's almost living on the street at the time when he paints this picture. And you really see like how hard his life has to be just coming out of this art. Like, the legs are bent and kind of crooked. The guy obviously is not in his best. Everything is blue. Everything is dark. Um, he's taken, Picasso's taken a starving artist on the street and he's painted him almost sad, bent up, dried up. And yet there's this guitar here too, right? He's clinging to that. It's almost like this anchor of hope in the world. He's still able to play music and make something beautiful in the world. And you put both these things together, there's this beggar and there's this guitar. And it really showcases both the, the glory and the beauty that's in the world but also the sadness, the tragedy, the hard things that are in the world. In a lot of ways, this is the biblical view of people too. You know, you can read Psalm 8 and they'll say, Lord, what are we that you are mindful of us? You've made us a little bit lower than the angels, yet you've crowned us with glory and honor. All people are created with incredible dignity, incredible beauty, incredible glory. Everyone, by, just by nature of being a person, possesses these things. And yet you turn a few pages and you get to Psalm 53 and it says, you know, everyone has fallen away and everyone's become corrupt and there's none who does good, not even one. Incredible brokenness, incredible sin, incredible depravity are in all of us too, right? It's all smushed together. Like there's this incredible glory, there's this incredible beauty, there's this incredible sadness and brokenness about the world. And all these things exist in us at the same time. And just by living, just by nature of living in God's world, where both these things are happening, everyone knows something about both the glory and the tragedy of the world. And that doesn't necessarily mean they know God Himself, but they know something about who God is and how He acts in the world. The good things we know, the good things that we do or possess, we can often turn those bad too, can't we? Paul says in Romans, for although they, that's everyone, knew God, they didn't honor Him as God or give thanks to Him. But they became futile in their thinking and their hearts were darkened. And that by nature is all of us. That's everyone in here. That's me. That's everyone you'll ever know. That we know something of God, but our hearts have turned away from Him and we're darkened. And here's what I want us to focus on tonight. Is that Christians can struggle to know what to say to people who get a lot of the truth of how good the world is. The beauty of the world, the dignity of the world. People who possess a ton of beauty and dignity and glory and integrity and intellect. Like, we can struggle to talk to those people, especially when those people are more moral than we are, or smarter than we are. I meet those people all the time. But biblically, those people need help to see, like, who God is, because we all struggle with that as well. So I want to talk tonight about three things. I want to look at three things here in Acts 17. Who should we go to? How should we go? And with what should we go? Who should we go to? How should we go? And with what should we go? And so here we are in Acts chapter 17. It's a little bit longer story, but it's, I think it's helpful for us to read Paul, kind of the ultimate missionary in people's minds. How did he go to people? And what did he say? 
Let's read Acts 17, 16-34, and we'll get started. Now while Paul was waiting for them, that's his friends, at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him, and some said, What does this babbler wish to say? Others said he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities, because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection, and they took hold of him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new teaching is that you're presenting? For you bring some strange things to our ears. We should know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship is unknown, this I proclaim to you, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of the dwelling place, that they should seek God in the hope they might feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, We will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysus the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. Let's pray and get started. Father, apart from your word, apart from how you've revealed yourself in your word, Lord, all of our things we do to approach you are things that we conjure up in our own imagination. Uh, they're things that uh, we make up, we believe, we want to believe. God, your word presses on some hard things in us. Um, it shapes and it molds each one of us. Lord, you're not how we imagine you. Um, you're better than we would imagine you. You're also holier than we would imagine you. You're more loving than we would imagine you. Lord, you're more righteous. Lord, I pray that you'd be with us tonight. You'd guide us through this text. You'd guide us through the story of your son Jesus as he works in the world. Lord, I pray that you'd work in our hearts through this. You'd be with us tonight in your power, in your presence, and your goodness. In your sins, we pray. Amen. So let's start. To whom should we go? Who is Paul going here to? Look at verse 16 here. Paul is waiting for his friends in Athens. He's just kind of hanging out. He's basically walking around the city. He's checking out the sites. Athens, even at this day, was an ancient, like, beautiful place. It's the seat of Greece. It's the seat of Greece's power, of like intellectual capital. Like it is like all the culture, all the cool stuff in Greece is happening in Athens right there. Even in Paul's day. It has the Acropolis, it has statues, it has artists, it has good food, good wine, like everything you'd want in a cool city. And Paul is walking around, he's basically kind of being a tourist. And he sees that there's a lot of idols there. And so he starts to reason with the people in the synagogues and the devout people there. And he's in Athens, and this is kind of a place where you go to reason. Like, this is the seat of philosophy in Greece. And so people are willing to debate and argue. And 
If you ever note, like, read any of Paul's letters, like, debate, argument, like, dealing in the world of ideas, philosophy, like, that's his wheelhouse. Like, he's probably loving this. Um, He goes further on, and he goes in the marketplace. And people aren't just selling stuff there. They're actually, like, they're talking. The marketplace is where you went to go talk about stuff as well. And he meets people there called uh, the Epicureans and the Stoics and kind of 30,000-foot view of both these kinds of people. When we think of Epicureans, sometimes we kind of think of, uh, like, people kind of maybe hedonistic. Don't think of Epicureans like that here. They didn't believe in the supernatural. They wanted people to kind of just enjoy the good things in life, like, in life, like kind of the Dolce Vita, like the sweet stuff. Like, enjoy these things, live a tranquil, peaceful existence, and, like, kind of get through life. The Stoics thought that self-control, not giving into bad emotions was the way to go. So they wanted to kind of like button those things up, be moral, and that was kind of our chief end. So as Paul is talking and debating with people, he's talking to very intelligent, he's talking to very moral people. Like the smartest people in Athens, the most moral people in Athens. I think for many of us, those are the people that God has placed in our lives here at Carolina. Like Carolina is full of incredibly smart, very moral like people. Like they're all over the place, and that's great. That's an awesome part of what it is to be here. Like, I'm glad we don't live in a war zone, you know? Like, aren't you? (laughs) Um, And some of those people, and some of the people here for Paul, are trying to deal with the harsh realities of life. Like, I think, like, we all are. They're trying to work out what does it mean to live a good life? What does it mean to deal with the things that are hard in life? What does it mean to deal with the things that are bad in life? Some of those people, like, that Paul and Matt are in the synagogues, they're very religious. Some of those people are not. Some have points of contact with the Christian faith. Some people don't. And this is very much like kind of the context we're in. And the way that Paul shows us to approach all these people is by talking to them, by reasoning with them, meeting them where they're at, going to where the people hang out, circulating ourselves in the, war- in the marketplace of business and ideas. Okay, so how should we go then? This is point two. How should we go? Look at verse 22 here. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you're very religious, for I passed along and I observed the objects of your worship. I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. Paul isn't attacking people here. Um, he points out, hey, y'all are religious. Like, I'm a religious guy too. Let's talk about that. They have a desire to worship. They have a desire to know God. And Paul encourages them that they should seek God in hopes that they would find Him. He says that as he passes along, he noticed they had this inscription to, with an altar that said, to an unknown God. And that was kind of the Athenians' way of saying, you know, like, we know there's all these gods out here. We worship all these gods. Uh, in case we've missed one of you, our bad, like, we're going to throw this idol up here. And we're just going to, like, we're going to make some sacrifices on it every now and again and pray to it every now and again. And, like, sorry about that, but, like, I hope, like, you're okay with that. Like, they're, lo- like, they're trying to cover their bases. They, they want to know God. They want to know what's out there. They want to interact with it. They don't have a clear picture of everything, though, yet. Right? Also, notice as Paul is talking here, he's quoting Greek poets. Like, he's affirming the points of contact between, like, the Bible and the things that are in the Greek world. He's, they say, in Him we live and move and have our being. Amen. Like, in God we live and move and have our being, and Paul is saying yes to that. 
says, for we are indeed his offspring. Yes. Like God made us. He made the world. Like we're his children. Paul is finding here points of contact with these people. He's building bridges. And he's showing them they have some of the truth, but he doesn't leave them there. He engages them to push forward into more of the truth. His desire is to help them to get more. Who is this God? Who, how should we approach the world? You know, he's not trying to like kind of dig like his kind of rhetorical sword into any sort of chinks in their moral armor. He's not trying to make them feel super guilty. He's saying, this is where we meet. This is where we connect. This is where I think that you have it right. This is where I want to help you grow. This is where I, where I help you want to see more of the light. What would this mean for us here? I think one of the things is, don't assume that because someone doesn't share your faith that you can't talk to them or hang out with them. You know, all of us live in God's world. All of us have to deal with how hard the world is. All of us have to deal with how beautiful the world is. Like, you can love some aspects of it and be totally broken by other aspects of it. And that's everybody. So, like, think about this. Are you a foodie? Like, do you like really good food? I bet other people do too. Do you, are you a beach person or are you a mountain person? There's other folks out there who feel that way. Sports. I guess sports is a big deal here. Uh, <laughs> do you want to complain about the finale of How I Met Your Mother? Other people do too. <laughs> Check out Facebook. <laughs> you know, none of these things that we care a lot about, that we enjoy, none of those things depend necessarily on a Christian worldview. All of these things are points of contact with people who do or don't know Jesus. Find the concepts, find the themes, find the things in a person's life that you both like and you both share, and talk about why do you like those things. Move closer to that person those things. Help them see more of the truth of the world. This is why you love creation. Here's the creator. Help someone to figure those things out. Also, speak in terms that people can understand, but don't get rid of the message of Christianity. Like, don't drop Christian lingo. If you don't know what Christian lingo is, just Google stuff Christians say. Like, check out that website. You'll get a pretty good feel for things. <laughs> you know, I was recently, uh, I'm a huge fan of This American Life. I love Ira Glass. I'm a big fan of Ira Glass and what he's done. Um, but I was recently watching an interview with him where this guy, I don't know anything about this guy. He's a Christian. He was interviewing Ira Glass. Kind of what has your experience been like with Christians? A really fascinating interview. And Ira talked about how years ago he went to Chicago and he was working on a story for This American Life about gangs in Chicago. And he was trying to get like, kind of an entry point into like, the gang world. And he said there were only two like, people that he could talk, two groups of people he could talk to that would kind of let him into there. And it was either the police, which is kind of problematic if you want to really talk to gang members, and there was these missionaries uh, named Glenn and Jane, who like, when I think about like, People with the least likely name to minister well to inner city gang members, Glenn and Jane. Like I'm picturing like Midwestern dad with like a mustache and a fanny pack is like ministering to like gang members. And yet Ira's like these people had a real impact on Ira Glass's life and loved him well and loved these gang members well. And Ira explained like these, these two this couple was so successful because they would explain stuff to the gang members in a way that didn't require them to have any contact or any experience with, like, kind of Christian subculture. So, like, and, our, and I didn't know this until I listened to the Iris, like, interview, but he said that in the gang world, you had, this is how little I know it, the gang world, in the gang world, <laughs> to get into the gang, they had to, they jumped you in. So they would beat you up to let you into the gang, and then to get out of the gang, they would jump you out of the gang. So, like, you would get beat up again. And Iris says that the missionary couple... 
would approach gang members and explain the gospel to like very rough, like generally like unchurched people by kind of breaking it down to them and say like, you know, just like in a gang, there's somebody calling the shots and God is calling the shots. And on the cross, Jesus got jumped in for you and took the pain that you deserve so you could get in with God. And that was very effective. Because that was taking out all the kind of Christian lingo, all the kind of like big Bible words, and just putting it in a way that these people understood. And this is from like a couple that like you don't you wouldn't expect from their names at least <laughs> that they would be like your likely like entry point into gang world. And yet they were. You have to really know people to be able to speak their language. You have to really speak, like spend time with people to be able to speak into their life and to know them well, and to speak into their story, and be able to think about their story in such a way that this is how the gospel relates to this person's life. This is how I can say this to them. Do that, you really have to know someone. Let's look at this. Live your life with gospel intentionality. Live your life with gospel intentionality and trust that God is at work. You know, for all intents and purposes here, Paul starts off as a tourist, He's hanging out, he's waiting for his friends, he's checking out the sites. Then he kind of gets really involved in Athenian culture. But he starts off with a tourist, as a tourist, and then he becomes a missionary. He's there, he's hanging out, but he lives with gospel intentionality. Like, these are the, here I am, Lord, and these are the things you put in my life, I'll be intentional with them. And here at UNC, you're a student, but you're, and so you're called to be a student. But you're also called to care for the people in your lives and to share with them the good news of the gospel. And one day, you might be in business, and that will still go on. Or you might be in medicine, and you might bind up people's wounds in their bodies, but you can also bind up their wounds in their souls. Or you might be a mom and a missionary at the same time. Be intentional with your life, and with the people that God has placed in your life. Do that. Also, and here's the final point here, be faithful, or being faithful doesn't always look successful. Being faithful doesn't always look successful. At the end of the story, Paul gets mocked. He leaves. A few people become Christians. They mention uh, one man, one woman, and they say, and some others. You know, Athens is not one of Paul's success stories. Like, if you look in the New Testament, there's not a letter of Paul to the Athenians. Like, it's just not there. Has Paul failed here, though? No, I don't think so. He's been faithful to the people that God has put in his life. That doesn't necessarily translate into instant success. He's been faithful to these people, and that's fine. But it doesn't mean it's going to be successful in the same way that we necessarily think about success. So you can be faithful to the people in your life, and that doesn't mean instant success either. You can have friends that you've loved, that you've shared the gospel with, that you spent years like loving, and they just don't care. Or they just don't get it. Or maybe God hasn't moved their heart in such a way that now is the time when they're willing to, to listen, or they're willing to be receptive to this. That's fine. God is at work. Continue in faithfulness. Continue in love. Love this person. Love the Lord. Love the Lord through loving this person. God's at work. And he's not done with you. He's not done with your friends. He's not done with your family members you love. Help them to grasp truth one more handful at a time. Help them with that. So this is our last point. With what should we go into the world? With what should we go into the world? 
Look at verses 31 and 32. This is kind of the end of Paul's sermon, his kind of climax here. He says, The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has fixed a day on which we will judge the war on which he will judge the world in righteousness by man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. You know, Paul grounds his message in the story of Jesus. He doesn't even say Jesus' name because he knows Jesus' name doesn't mean that much to the Athenians here. But he wants to help them see themselves in the story of Jesus, at least. And that story is about absolute justice. That God will deal with the heartbreak of the world, the sadness of the world, that no one will get away with the evil that's been done against women, and against children, and against other men, or against you. No one will get, done, get away with the evil that's been done against the environment, and the stewardship that we should have done over the world, but have failed in in many ways. No one will get away with anything God believes in absolute justice. He's absolutely holy, and yet there's also this jaw-dropping grace here. Paul says that he, God is calling everyone to repent and come to Him. That means there must be some way to come to Him and receive mercy. And he doesn't get into it here, but the way he does that is through this man, Jesus, who takes on the penalty of the righteousness that we failed at, who takes on all the judgment that we deserve and carries that, so we could turn to Him and we would know, like, God, you look at me in the same way you look at Jesus because the things that I've done, you've put on Jesus, on the cross. And you free us from that. And fleshing this out later, Paul says in the third chapter of his letter to the Romans, All have sinned. Everyone has fallen short of the glory of God. But we're all made right by His love as a gift through the redemption that's in Christ Jesus. Everyone's broken. But God gives you the very thing you need to stand in front of Him and to be okay. He gives you Himself, and He's willing to meet you right where you are, in your ignorance, in your fear, in your heartbreak, in your mistrust of Christians, your confusion about who He is. You know, I'll say this, if you consider yourself a Christian, then you can't gloss over this or act like God hasn't done this very thing for you. What was Paul's story? He's on a road trip to go persecute Christians. Jesus meets him and forgives him and sends him out to go tell other people about how good he is. And in some way, that's all of our story. That God has met us, he's forgiven us, and he sent us out in the world to tell people how good he is. He is absolutely loving. He's absolutely just. He's absolutely merciful. And he calls us to help other people to see who he is. And if He's done this good thing for you, then help other people see what He could do for them. I'll end with this. I was reading a story recently about a man and his wife uh, who have a daughter who was born with some developmental problems. Uh, he doesn't name what they are exactly, but she's, she was born deaf. Uh, she doesn't have use of like, fine motor skills. They weren't sure she would ever be able to walk, um, but she did finally walk when she was three. And the man was telling the story of how she started to walk. And he said, you know, like, we didn't think that she would ever walk. And when she finally walks two years late, like, did we look at her and say, well, like, good, I guess, but you'll never learn how to run or skip or jump at this rate. Like, you've got a lot of catching up to do. No, they didn't say that. He said that they screamed, they jumped up and down, they yelled, the cameras came out. Somebody went and got ice cream. Like, 
It was a party. It was a celebration. Even though this person was learning how to walk when she was three, that her parents loved her and said, I don't care how weak she is, I don't care how late she is in coming to this thing that almost everyone seems to be able to get. Like, we love her. We celebrate her. And y'all, if sinful people can do that, what does a sinless God do when people come to Him? How much rejoicing do you think He does when people come to Him? Late? Messed up? Broken? God welcomes our unsteady, uncertain steps to Him all the time. He welcomes our messiness. Jesus says, Come to me all who are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. The criteria for Jesus seems to be that if you're feeling overwhelmed and you're feeling burdened and you're feeling worn down by the world and you feel like you can't get up on your own two feet, good. Good, because that's what He wants. Because He wants to meet you in your weakness. He wants to meet all of us in our need. And if God has met you in that stuff and He's helped you there, then lead someone else there. Help someone to see the God who heals our brokenness and wipes away our tears and makes us whole and makes us new and makes us clean. And rest in Him and love your neighbor as yourself. Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your goodness to us. Thank You that You've loved us even at the cost of Your own Son. Jesus, that when You came and You became a person, a human being on this, in this world, that, Lord, for you to love your neighbor meant that you would go to a cross for us. And, Lord, that you would empty yourself of power and that you would become sin so that we become the righteousness of God. And, Lord, I pray that you would help us to meet our friends there who don't know you, to show them our sin, our brokenness, our heartache. Lord, to show them the one who makes us whole and new and who breaks his heart so that we can become clean and healed. Would you help us with that? Should be good to that us in that way. In your sense, I need to pray. Amen.